Amen. You may be seated. And as you're doing so, I do invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. As today is the first Sunday of Advent, we are beginning a new series. A series I have titled, God Provides. And so for today and the next three Sundays, and even on Christmas Eve, we're going to be looking at how God provides for us even today. Today in particular, we're going to see how God provides a Savior in Matthew 1, 18 to 25. You can also find this text in the um, outline that's in your bulletin, along with a brief um, outline of today's message. The reality is, we need a Savior. We need hope. We need forgiveness. We need to be reminded of these things each and every day, but I find it helpful at least once a year to spend particular time contemplating these truths. And in order to appreciate our need for a Savior, we need to appreciate our reason for having one. And that reason is you and I are sinful. We are disobedient to the High King. He gives us His laws. He gives us His commands. And we don't keep them. By what we don't do and what we do that is against His law. What we neglect to do as well. And because of that, we deserve judgment, condemnation, punishment, eternal suffering, Um, The future truly is bleak, left on our own. But in Christ, there is hope. There's forgiveness. There's a future, for He is our Savior. That is what we will see this morning in our text. So I do invite you to look with me as we read Matthew's recording of the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. I'll begin in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us now go to our Father and ask his blessing upon this time. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, each one of us here today needs these truths. We need this reminder, even as children who rest in you and in your good works. We need reminding again and again of our dependence upon you. 
Father, if there be some here or listening online who do not know you, oh, how they need this message today. How they need to know the weight of their sin and what it cost and what you were willing to do to bring people to yourself. Father, we ask the presence of your Holy Spirit to be upon us, that we might hear and receive, that we might listen and accept, that we might see and believe your message today. And so we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. If you really think about it, the birth narrative of Jesus begins with a crisis. Joseph finds out that his wife-to-be is pregnant. Now, he could have certainly brought her before a council for judgment, on which at minimum would be divorce, most likely would have been stoning, and would have been justified in doing so, according to the Jewish law. But Mary had been chosen by God to perform a task that no one else would. She would bring into the world a Savior, Joseph finds himself at a crossroads to which an angel visits him and guides him on the proper path. It's in this conversation that we come to see the importance of this child. We know that his birth will be miraculous, but we also know much more. As we're considering this narrative this morning, I want you to pay particular attention to the titles or names given to Jesus. Not only do they teach us his birth story, but they also teach us the nature of the one who has come. Names are significant in the Bible, and it is no mistake that Jesus is called these things. Particular attention will be given to each name of Jesus this morning in our passage. So let's explore this wonderful story together by beginning in verse 18. And Matthew tells us in verse 18 his purpose and his goal in writing this. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. He wants us to know about the birth of Jesus Christ. He wants us to know about how it took place. He wants to give us an accurate account of the details or the details that are important to him. And I say that and one thing that's very important when reading the Gospels, particularly Matthew you need to remember each one was written with a a certain audience in mind. And especially Matthew. Matthew is writing to primarily a Jewish audience. Matthew's main overarching goal is to prove Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the Messiah to come. He is the one who has been promised. It's why we begin, um, if we had read 1, 1 to 17, with the genealogy of Jesus, thus lining things up to tie in the Old Testament and the New. And so as we read through this text, we're going to think about what Matthew includes and some things he doesn't, remembering that first he was writing to a Jewish audience, but broadly he's writing to all of us today. And we start that conversation by looking to Mary and Joseph. We learn at this stage that they are betrothed, not married. And sometimes people wrongly um, equate this to engagement in today's culture. Uh, But Jewish culture had a very different understanding of this betrothal stage. At this point, um, they were already promised to each other. Payment had to have been made to her parents... And they were simply awaiting the ceremony 
Um, she would be home learning how to be a mother from her side of the family. He would be home preparing a place for her and for them to stay. And they were awaiting the time that was right, that was appropriate for them to consummate the marriage. But if for all intents and purposes, they were joined together. And it was not easy to get out of this binding covenant contract. It's not like today's engagements that can be called off on a whim. And this is why the news that Joseph receives is so shocking. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph's bride-to-be was pregnant. Furthermore, she was claiming this pregnancy did not come from sexual relations with a man, but was given to her by the Holy Spirit. Something that had never happened before. There was only one way to produce children in the biblical time, and this was not it. So imagine Joseph. Imagine hearing this news. Imagine being told this grand story. You can see why there would probably be a lot of confusion. Um, maybe some hurt. Maybe a little bit of heartache. According to the Levitical law, the penalty for such instance is death. Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. This would have caused a scandal. I know in our culture today, it, it disregards marital fidelity and is oversaturated with sexual misconduct. But... Go further in Leviticus 20. This is what God called his people to be. Not only do you not do this, he says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from people that you should be mine. So the people of God were called to be holy, to be pure, to be righteous, to be like God in all things. And so this was a serious offense. This is something that we do not take lightly. And yet... We learn something about Joseph here, don't we? We get very little about Joseph in the biblical narrative. In fact, in Matthew, he never speaks. Another pastor made a joke at this point about how that's appropriate in marriage. But um, Joseph ponders and he thinks. He's a quiet man. He's also a man of compassion. He's a man of good heart. Why? He loved Mary. Even in light of this proposed scandal. Even in light of what's going on. What does he do? He seeks to divorce her quietly. Now, that, that may seem like a, not an act of love, but think about the alternative. The alternative was to turn her into the council and witness her stoning. And so, no, he seeks to, to end the relationship quietly to hopefully spare his life because he loved her. He really and truly did. And while we know little about Joseph, we know he was a man of love. We also know that he was visited by an angel. He didn't get a chance to carry out this act for he was... Considering these things, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will, he will save his people from their sins. Joseph is told by this angel that Mary has not lied. She has not slept with another man. She has not broken her vows or promises she has already made. This baby comes from the Holy Spirit. And it will not just be any baby. This will be Jesus, Savior of His people. 
And I don't want you to miss something very important in our, in our text. We know that Joseph is a loving guy, and we know that he cares deeply for his bride-to-be. But there's another aspect of Joseph that I don't want us to, to miss, because like I said, he gets underappreciated in the biblical context. Joseph is told this fantastic news. He's now visited by an angel, which anytime you see an angel in the Bible, most people fall on their faces as if they're dead because they're utterly terrified. Angels spend so much time in God's presence, it radiates from them. Joseph stands face to face and has this conversation. And then what does he do? He listens. He listens. So what do we learn about Joseph? Joseph is not only a loving, compassionate man, he's a man of faith. When an angel of the Lord says, I'm an angel of the Lord, here's how it is, Joseph says, okay. He does exactly what he's told. He trusts God. He had some understanding of the Old Testament. He had some understanding of prophecy and of the biblical account. Or else he wouldn't have done these things. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. This may be a a bit of a momentary aside, but I do want to say a firm foundation in the commands of God and in his truths is vital for us to endure difficult times. Um, This is is worth stating because far often we find ourselves in difficult seasons and hard times and hard matters facing difficult circumstances. And what does the Bible teach us? What does the story of Jesus' birth and Joseph and Mary, what does it teach us? The key to enduring difficulty is a firm foundation in God's word and trust in him and love for one another. It's almost as if Jesus said something like the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's not an oversimplification to say that it really is that way. And we see that here in this birth narrative. And once again, we go back to the reality that Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. Because of that, he tells us these words. He kind of breaks from his narrative. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we get commentary on what's taken place. And this is a quote from the prophet Isaiah. The one whom Isaiah promised would come. We heard about it in our Advent reading. The shoot from the stump of Jesse, the suffering servant, the remnant of the nation of Israel is Jesus Christ. And so when this is taking place, when this is happening, our minds are supposed to go back and be rattling through the chapters of Isaiah. We're to be thinking about what's taking place in Isaiah and see it as being fulfilled in Christ. Now, Matthew does not go into great detail, um, especially compared with Luke from this point. Um, He says that that Joseph awoke from his dream. He did what he was told. Um, He did not sleep with his wife until after she had a child, um, and they called him Jesus. And this may seem like an anticlimactic story. Um, And a lot of us who are are used to Luke's rendition of this gospel account may find ourselves wanting uh, at this point. Um, But 
if we're spending our time, if we're reading through Matthew and then going, oh, Old Testament, not only do we need to go back to Isaiah, we need to go back to Genesis. We need to go back to Jeremiah. We need to go back to Samuel. We need to go back to other places and and supplement what we're hearing with the fulfillment of these promises. We could talk about um, just how Jesus' genealogy fulfills no less than a dozen prophecies. Um, Jesus would be called, or Joseph is called the son of David, which means Jesus is of the line of David, prophesied in Isaiah 11.1, Jeremiah 23.5-6, 2 Samuel 7.12-13. There's three there. If we went further back and we looked at verses 1 through 17 and saw all of those uh, people in his genealogy, we would find out Jesus was said to be of Abraham, Genesis 12, 3, Isaac, Genesis 26, 4, Jacob, Genesis 28, 14, of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, 8 through 12, and of Jesse, Isaiah 11, 1. Furthering our prophecy fulfillments right here. The probability that one could be each of these men of these men's bloodlines are astronomical. For all of you math-minded people, I've got a stat for you I think you'll appreciate. A mathematician took 48 of the possible 300 and something prophecies in the Old Testament that specifically relate to Jesus Christ. So prophecies that have to be fulfilled in order for Jesus to be who the Old Testament says he is. They took 48 of them. And calculated in order for every single one of them to come to fulfillment, it would be 10 to the 157th power chance of happening. That's 10 followed by 157 zeros. That's the likelihood of 48 of the potential 320 prophecies coming true. Far greater than a million to one. We like to use the words a million to one is this impossible probability. Um, You've got a better chance of hitting a million to one odds than Jesus being who he is. And yet God nailed it with pinpoint accuracy. We see that in this story. We see that as we start unraveling these prophecies and fulfillments. And it only continues and expands as Jesus grows and as he fulfills prophecy after prophecy after prophecy all the way to the cross. 10 to the 157th power chance of happening. What's an even greater chance is that Think about it. All of the people that have ever walked this earth, all of the people that have ever have lived, and I can say with confidence that if you're trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, he died for you. Specifically, intentionally, he was born and he died for you. How's that for improbable odds? Well, that's enough about us. I want to talk a little more about Jesus this morning, and I want to shift, if you will let me, um, not just from his story and how his story fulfills specific prophecies, but I want to turn now to his nature. Who is he or who was he to be? What was he going to be like? How was he going to act? What was he going to do when he got here? And we see that in the different names given to us in our text. And in biblical times, names meant a great deal. And in fact, people tended to live up to the names given to them. Abraham means father of a multitude, which is exactly what God promised he and his wife when they changed his name. The prophet Isaiah's name means God is salvation. And and what is the major theme of the book of Isaiah? And that salvation will come to those who trust in him in spite of 
captivity. We could look at the names of Hosea's children where they were given names of judgment and punishment representing how God would respond to the people of Israel before changing them to names of hope and of promise. It shouldn't surprise us then that if we take a look at our passage, we learn a great deal about the child to be born. In fact, we have at least three. I'm going to focus on three unique names for Jesus this morning we see in our text. First, he's told, we're told he will be Christ. Jesus Christ. I'll come to the Jesus portion um, in a moment, but Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. You could also translate it as anointed one. Set apart, holy. In Isaiah 61, the Messiah is speaking himself, and he speaks of being anointed by Jehovah through the Holy Spirit. Jesus, upon his baptism, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and God says, Behold my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus has been set apart for a very specific purpose. Being the eternal Son of God, He and He alone was able to be the Messiah, the second Adam. He would save His people from their sins, thus fulfilling the Christ aspect of His name. Secondly, we are told here in Matthew and in quoting Isaiah, He would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Mankind would declare in Jesus that God had come to dwell with us. God is not far off or uninvolved with the actions of man like the gods of other religions. No, Jesus is actively, presently involved in creation and in the plan of salvation for his people. Remember, Jesus willingly subjected himself to the birth and to the life that would ultimately lead him to the cross. He knew what it meant for the people of God to be able to declare that God is with us. And so he endured these things for you and for me. This would be a special promise to Mary and Joseph as well. Can you imagine what it was like to raise Jesus? I like to think about this often. I'd have never disciplined him for fear that lightning would strike and I said the wrong thing. But this was a blessing. To them, God was with them, literally. As Mary nursed him at night, as she held him and cared for him, she literally held the Son of God. As Joseph taught him and loved him and cared for him and showed him a way of life, he was training the Son of God. God with us. God is with us, and especially God was with Mary and Joseph. But thirdly, and where our text climaxes, and she gave birth to a son, and they called him Jesus. Joseph did not pick a family name, although he had every right to do so. He did not name him after himself or after his father. He called him Jesus. Why? I give you two reasons. One, he was told by the angel of the Most High God not to. That pretty much is the list. <laughs> There's not really a reason needed past that. God's messenger said, no. Once again, we know of the trust that Joseph has in God. Because what did Joseph do? He obeyed. He listened to God's messenger. But secondly, he called him Jesus because Jesus has special meaning. 
Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Savior. Jesus' name reveals his goal and objective. Who is he? Savior. What did he, came, what did he come to do? Save. And he lived up to his namesake, didn't he? What a name. Now we could take that name Jesus and we could turn it to Joshua. And throughout the Old Testament we could read how Joshua brought rest to the people and led them to the promised land as he was tasked by God. And that's what Jesus does for you and for me today. He acts as a savior, he brings us rest, and he leads us to the promised land Again, fulfilling his namesake. Now, how does he do all of these things? He submits himself to the commands of God. Jesus Christ lived without sin. He fully obeyed. He preached and taught and healed and loved throughout his earthly ministry. And when it came time, he laid it all down. Jesus tells us, no one takes my life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I lay it down that I might take it up again. I give my life for my sheep. My sheep know me and hear my voice. And when I call, they answer. He died so that we might live. He went to the grave so that we might escape the punishment of death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Believe in him. That's the requirement to access the saving work. Jesus truly is Savior to all who trust in Him, even to this day. Also, by His nature, He provides rest. Now, how does He do this for you and me? Well, let me answer that this way. Think of the largest debt you owe. Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's college tuition. Maybe someone quite literally has saved your life and you feel indebted to them. How heavy does that debt feel? How often do you think about it? Often do you lie awake at night wondering if you will ever escape it. It's always lingering. It never seems to shrink. It always seems there. Multiply that times a thousand, and you would yet to even begin to understand the weight of your own sin. But imagine that debt being lifted. Imagine you go home today and it's gone. It's no longer there. Someone has paid it in full. How do you feel? Will you sleep better tonight? Will you be at peace and have rest? Of course you would. Of course you would. This great weight upon you has been lifted. It's gone. It's over. That's what Jesus Christ does for us. We who trust in him by faith, we find rest. For he has taken the weight of sin. He has placed it upon himself and says his yoke is light and his burden is easy. Furthermore, he promises the Holy Spirit and said, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I will make you more and more into my image. I will make you love sin less and love me more. So that one day he will call us home and we will be perfected. And we will be like him. That is rest. And that only comes through Jesus Christ. And then lastly, Jesus, much like Joshua, leads us to the promised land. And except for us, where the promised land for Israel was a literal place, I would argue the promised land is more a relationship. It's a relationship with God, the Father. And because we understand it this way, we can have it right now. We can have it today. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are in the promised land. 
Theologically, we call this the already and not yet. You already today purchase, have purchased for you freedom in God. You have a relationship with the Father. And we're awaiting the fulfillment of that, it becoming more and more a reality. We do long for eternity in heaven. We look forward to what it will be like to see the loved ones that have gone before us. But right now, even now, we have a Father who is present in our lives. We have a Father who is quick to forgive and to give us what we need to glorify Him and to live fulfilled lives on this earth. Jesus, our great high priest, offered himself as a sacrifice so that we could stand in God's presence. He bridged the gap for us. He gives us this relationship now. And when he returns, we will see it in fulfillment as he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus leads us to the promised land. And he does so by first going to the cradle. He does so by first submitting himself to an act of birth in a barn the animals, no anesthesia, no electricity, probably no hot water. He subjected himself to that so that you and I might have a savior. You and I might find rest. You and I might be led to the promised land. You and I might have that weight lifted off of us. You and I might have forgiveness for our sins. My prayer for all of us is that we take this holiday season to reflect upon all that God has done for us. A divine agreement took place between the members of the Godhead that was carried out to perfection to bring Jesus into this world. Greater than a million to one odds. And God nailed it with absolute perfection. Through the prophecies of the Bible and through looking back, we see how important Jesus was and continues to be. This is why we celebrate these days of Advent. And in closing, might I just say, as we look forward to the next year, From a worldly standpoint, I can't tell you that 2021 is going to be any better than 2020 was for you. I can't promise it. I can't guarantee it. I wish I could. But I can promise you this. If you commit now for the year 2021, the Lord gives it to us to look toward Jesus, that your focus will be upon him, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming back. You will get to this time next year. And you will say it's been a good year. No matter what happens, no matter what takes place, no matter what difficulties or hardships or new twists we face, you will be able to say it is well with my soul. That is my prayer for each one of us as we go through this time of reflection upon Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, many, many of us are weary from this past year from its challenges, from its curves, from its deviations, from what we wanted or what we thought might happen. Many have endured difficult seasons, significant hardship and loss. And we grieve with our family, with our church body, with the world over these things. But Father, may Advent be a time of reorientation. May we turn our focus and our attention to you. For when our mind and our heart are upon you, no matter what is provided by this world, we will say glory, glory, glory to the Son of hosts, who is holy, who was and is and yet to come. Father, I thank you for Matthew's telling of this story. 
I thank you for the prophecies that are seen to be fulfilled again and again and again across his account. I pray as we study your word, we would have a mind of the big picture and how it all ties together. The covenant of grace, forgiveness. We could not do it, and so you did. Thank you for the forgiveness provided in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and how we see that here in its infancy stage in the birth. Thank you for this time, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.